Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, December 7th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Army Corps of Engineers makes public a report on how a flood mitigation project in Jackson could change the Pearl River. Then state lawmakers continue to disagree on what a budget should look like for the next legislative session. Plus, we speak with an investigative reporter about their in-depth coverage of the Rankin County Sheriff's Office. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Conservation and community organizations in Jackson are expressing relief. Officials appear to be considering a cheaper, more comprehensive plan to address the city's flood management issues. The Army Corps of Engineers has been studying a flood mitigation plan titled One Lake, which would widen part of the Pearl River east of Jackson. Proponents of the plan claim it would help mitigate flooding near the Ross Barnett Reservoir. But environmental activists say it would do little to help the city's flood problems while also hurting the flow of the river downstream. The Army Corps of Engineers began their study into the project in May to determine if it was cost efficient. The internal report was finalized in August, but only recently made public. The Corps determined it would cost roughly $2 billion to complete the One Lake project, Abby Brayman is executive director of the Pearl Riverkeeper. She says independent studies of the plan conducted earlier this year showed it would do more harm than good. The One Lake plan would induce flooding on 230 structures in the study area and likely many more structures downstream. The One Lake plan would cost between $1.4 to $2.2 billion. Um, On top of that, cleanup of the multiple hazardous toxic waste sites that would impact uh, the project will add an additional $492 million to $1.5 billion to these costs. So the One Lake Plan will have a benefit cost ratio of just 0.2 to 0.3. This means that as a matter of law, the Corps cannot recommend the plan for construction because the plan cannot be economically justified. In other words, the benefits of the project do not exceed the costs. Um, It's not possible to replace the extensive wetland and riverine habitat acreage that would be destroyed by one lake. So the Corps acknowledges that experts agree that it's impossible to restore or compensate for large-scale ecosystem losses that would be caused by one lake. 
The Army Corps suggests in their report alternative solutions to be used that are more cost-effective, as we mentioned. Braham says the August report did give some suggestions. Which is called Alternative A1. That plan would elevate or floodproof approximately 600 structures in the 100-year floodplain. So residential structures would be elevated and non-residential structures would be floodproofed. And participation in this plan would be entirely voluntary. Uh, This plan would not induce flooding on any structures. It would not require any mitigation. Um, It would cost $199 million and have a benefit cost ratio of 2.7. So this plan could be executed immediately, according to the Corps, under the current project authority once their EIS is finalized. So the Corps has already set aside enough funding to fully cover the federal cost of this alternative. Um, $221 million uh, was appropriated for City of Jackson flood risk management in October of 2022. So um, under project first costs, you have 198 million dollars estimated for alternative a1 and then you have alternative c which is one lake the low cost estimate of 1.3 billion and alternative c the high cost estimate of 2.1 billion if you go down and look at these uh highlighted numbers uh this would be the net benefits of the project so alternative a which is elevation and flood proofing would have um, an 11 million dollar net benefit which is why it has a benefit cost ratio of 2.7 If you'll look at alternative C1 Lake, um, the low cost, um, you can see it actually um, has a deficit. There's a negative benefit. So it would be negative 37 million, which is why it has a benefit cost ratio of 0.3. At the high cost, it would have a negative um, deficit of 65 million. The Revelations Army Corps of Engineers are considering other solutions as being welcomed by communities downstream who rely on the Pearl River for a variety of utility and environmental reasons. Martha Watts is the mayor of the town of Monticello. She says losing water flow could drastically hurt the economic development projects already underway in her community. You know, we have a Georgia Pacific here. They contribute $5 million a year to our tax base. We're a very small county. We're a very small town, and $5 million to us is a lot of money. They had a $91 million project coming up that should have started two or three months ago, and I'm pretty sure that this lake project, the potential of it, is why that has not started yet. Uh, We need that investment here. Um, I think Bogalusa is in the same. I know that they're in the same situation or worse. I get a phone call from someone um, about once a week from Bogalusa uh, speaking about this subject. Besides the uh, $5 million in tax base that Georgia Pacific contributes, they also contribute a huge amount to our hospital, to our schools, to the town, to our civic center, to our parks. You know, they're just a huge contributor, and we need them here. Um, another thing that you touched on um, were the permits when, if this lake were to be, you know, there's what, 90 to 100 permits south of Jackson uh, and to Louisiana, and uh, the town is permitted, and the permitted, permits are based on water flow, you know, and that would, you know, I don't know what we would do. I don't know how Georgia Pacific would manage, and those are just added costs. Georgia Pacific put something like a $10 million a price tag 
on the retrofit that it would take for them to be able to draw out and put back into the river. She says an alternative plan benefits not only her city, but others as well. I'm just uh, thrilled for the city of Jackson, what you're going to be receiving from this with these other alternatives, uh, because the lake would not help you, it would hurt you. You're going to benefit from this. We're going to benefit from this. Um, And you were also right on point when you spoke about those up around the reservoir, not you know, we do not exist in their world. Downstream does not exist in their world. So that has been one of the most frustrating for things for us to go up against because to them, we were of no consequence. To our senator, we are of no consequence. Uh, and he does have an opponent that has come out. So just just saying, you know, we, we are relevant down here. You know, we have lives down here also. We have uh, fishermen that have made their their whole lives off of fishing the river and uh, to speak to the pollutants in there, the toxins and the pollutants in there, there's no doubt, you know, there's no doubt that it's harming um, the wildlife and, and all. So um, we've, we've got to get that cleaned up. Coming up, state lawmakers on a committee continue to disagree with the governor over revenue estimates and forego proposing a budget. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What are your holiday traditions? Driving to see relatives? Baking treats? Curling up on the couch near the fireplace? MPB Think Radio can be a part of each of these holiday events. Listen on your car radio or your smart speaker, along with on-demand favorites like Deep South Dining and AutoCorrect inside the MPB Public Media app. Start a new tradition today listening to MPB Think Radio while you celebrate the holidays. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. From our family at Mississippi Public Broadcasting to your family at home, wishing you joy, love, and laughter during this special season. Happy Holidays from MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Lawmakers have not yet reached an agreement for next year's budget. Members of the Joint Legislative Budget Committee have been considering a variety of economic projections for 2024 And actually, that's for the fiscal year 2025. A study group proposed a revenue estimate of around $7.6 billion. After speaking with the state economists about a possible economic downturn next year, members of the committee authored a proposal that comes in lower than those original estimates, around $100 million less. Governor Tate Reeves disagreed with that plan and that was created, and he says limiting revenue estimates could hurt his plans to cut or eliminate the state income tax. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, who chairs this year's Joint Legislative Budget Committee, says he still believes a conservative revenue estimate is the way to go because no budget has been passed yet, and lawmakers will likely have to begin the session before it's completed. Well, we have a baseline that we uh, uh, approved. There was a recommendation approved. We have a baseline. We'll go into three weeks from now. We'll go into session. 
and I expect we'll start with that. And then um, I want to talk to the governor before he does his budget analysis. That's due January 31st. Uh, we have historically, we met a couple of years, uh, had JLBC meetings during and set the budget during the actual uh, session. So I anticipate that will happen. Uh, you know, we, you, you heard my discussion. We, we have been below estimate three of the last five months when you take interest out. And uh, the discussion we had, the facts are proven out that we may not be at estimate. And we'll find out in December and January, and I think that's when we all sit down with the governor and see really where we are. Uh, the trend is not uh, going positively for the estimate from, for this year. And I think we all need to just look at the numbers. They're, you know, as to theory and stuff, I, I mean, in theory, I just think we need to look at the numbers. Hosman says a delayed budget recommendation should not have any effect on when lawmakers finalize their budgets in the upcoming session. Those, that decision will be made independently. When we look at, you know, what our workload is, how many bills there are, how much time it thinks we, we have. The fact that, uh, you know, Jason has been the president pro tem, he's not really a learning curve. The governor's been the governor, the lieutenant governor's been the lieutenant governor. So with that built-in uh, time frame to assist new individuals is, is appropriate, uh, but it's not really uh, necessary in this case because most of the players are still here. We have, I think, six new senators and about 20 new House members or 25 new House members. So the majority of people are back, and usually that's so everybody can get their feet on the ground and learn what's going on. In it. But in this particular instance, most everybody that you know is in the leadership position will be back. Hosman says there are other deadlines for budget recommendations yet to come. Lawmakers will start the 2024 session using the lower revenue estimate to draft budget proposals. Governor Reeves' budget proposal is due January 31st. Hosman said he hopes they can agree on a revenue estimate before then. No, not right now. Uh, the budget, the governor's budget is due, I think, the 31st of January. And I, I could see us, um, and, you know, I see us and the speaker, once the speaker's hired, discussing with the governor where we are. And, and I, I do anticipate at some point in time if these numbers continue like we had when we had COVID and like we've had other issues, I, 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 I anticipate that we will meet sometime during the session. The board will meet and determine the estimate for next year. But that's I want to get the numbers. Pretty, yeah, that's pretty common. Though, it's be, very common, and, and we, we yeah. usually do that. Yeah. And, and the governor, I don't think it's necessary to be at those meetings. But, but yeah, I anticipate we'll look. Um, I, I want hard numbers, and I want the numbers to as close as possible to the time we do the projection. And I, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Coming up, we speak with an investigative reporter about their in-depth coverage of the Rankin County Sheriff's Department. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Why sequester planet-warming carbon dioxide deep underground when you can just inject it into wet concrete? It's permanent. Once that CO2 is embedded in the concrete, it's there forever. Storing carbon in bridges, sidewalks, and buildings when our climate series reverse course continues next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. 
please join me and my colleagues for the Mississippi Arts Hour, where we have in-depth conversations with different creative Mississippians. That's the Mississippi Arts Hour, Sundays at 5 on Think Radio, or download it as a podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A recent article published by the New York Times in partnership with local news outlets shines a light on an alleged long history of racism and violence within the Rankin County Sheriff's Department. Brian Howey is a fellow at the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. He shares the stories of more than a dozen people who claim to have been victims of abuse by sheriff's deputies. My colleague Nate Rosenfield and I have spent the past six months looking into the behavior of Rankin County Sheriff's deputies. And what we found was that the Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker incident was just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Over the past six months, we've identified 17 additional incidents involving 22 people who claimed that they were tortured by Rankin County Sheriff's deputies. So many of the same deputies who were involved in the Jenkins and Parker incident also carried out these alleged torture sessions in cases dating back as far as 2004. When you talk about the Rankin County Sheriff's Department deputies being involved in this is one thing, but then you hear about a police officer from another department within the county engaging in this behavior. Were you able to find out if it extended to any other police departments that worked along with deputies in the county in this terrorizing folks? We haven't been been able to conclusively confirm anything yet on those ends. We do know that um, current Pearl Police Chief Dean Scott, uh, who was a Rankin County deputy at the time, was present for at least two of these incidents. And it's important to caveat this by saying that you know, based on what we've seen in the police records, we can't know what role each deputy played in these incidents. We've identified 20 deputies who were at least present during these incidents, but there's no way for for us to know unless um, these people actually identified the deputies, what role they played in, you know, the torture and these arrests. Have you been able to talk to any officers affiliated with departments, law enforcement departments in Rankin County, maybe even off the record? Uh, well, I mean, anyone, you know, we've spoken to off the record, we, we can't talk about. But, um, you know, we have reached out to some of the deputies we named in this story before we published. Um, a couple of them spoke to us briefly only to decline comment. Um, some said they had to, because they're still employed with the department, some said, that they needed to speak with their supervisor before they could talk to us. And then uh, we were eventually told that uh, none of the deputies would be made available for comment by a department representative. These officers, in many instances, were known as the Goon Squad. Your report says that it was largely night officers that worked at night shift and then narcotics detectives. They encouraged and tortured people to allegedly get them to confess to crimes. Did you find that people confessed to crimes that they didn't commit under the under duress? In at least a couple of cases, people do claim that they were tortured until they confessed to buying drugs from someone they didn't know or, <clears throat> um, 
until they agreed to set someone else up in a drug buy. And so, yes, a, a lot of times this torture was centered around getting information out of people that would allow deputies to perform more drug busts. And I just want to note here that in every case that we looked at, um, if there was a drug buy involved, it was usually a relatively minor drug buy. The, the largest bust that we identified in all of the 17 cases that we um, were able to corroborate with department records, the largest drug bust among them was, was for $420 worth of heroin. And so these are not drug kingpins who are moving tons and tons of, of methamphetamine or other narcotics. These are usually either um, small-time drug dealers or people who are struggling with addiction issues and um, are buying, you know, a couple of grams of methamphetamine or in some cases even just some marijuana. In your report, it says that they really infiltrated poor neighborhoods. Was the point to target people of color? Was there a racial makeup to this in your estimation, what you found? What we found was the main driving force behind these alleged torture incidents was was drug use. Um, in every single case, there was some sort of uh, drug buy that happened, uh, usually set up by a confidential informant. So what we found was that the main driving force behind these incidents was uh, drugs. In nearly all of these cases, were initiated by some sort of confidential informant who set up a drug buy with a person who claims they were tortured. Um, in the cases where the people being arrested were black, there absolutely was a racial component. All of the black people who say they were tortured by deputies say they had racial epithets hurled at them. And several of the white people who we spoke to said that they were compared to black people in a derogatory way while they were being beaten or tortured. And so while it doesn't appear that race drove these incidents, it certainly became a factor as soon as the deputies realized that they were arresting someone who was not white. Can you describe the type of torture that folks said they endured? We know with the the two black men that led to convictions, one was shot in the mouth. They were also tased repeatedly. They were waterboarded. They were also sexually assaulted with a sex toy. We found many commonalities among the incidents that we identified. Um, several people say they were sexually assaulted in some way. Um, Rick Loveday, a former Hines County Sheriff's deputy, says that when he was assaulted, um, they attempted to jab a flashlight into his buttocks. Um, you know, another man says that after they held him down and, and tased him multiple times, uh, Christian Deadman used a sex toy to shove it into his mouth and told them told him that if he spat it out he would he would tase him as well. Um, <clears throat> we also found the use of food was a common uh, theme among these incidents. Deputies often would destroy people's foods or would use it to humiliate them. Going back to Rick Loveday, for instance, he says that they smashed a chocolate cake into his face. Um, 
Andrea de Torre says that when they raided her home, they poured milk into the dinner that she had just eaten. And other people say that when they were raided, the deputies came and trashed their food and threw it all over to the floor. And so these commonalities, um, you know, we've also we also saw in the Jenkins and Parker case were to us clues that we were onto a pattern here. They helped um, support these people's claims in that they were so specific and yet shared a common theme across many of the cases. Brian Howie is a fellow at the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. We'll continue our conversation with Howie tomorrow. After today's show, Howie and other reporters who worked on the story will be participating in a virtual Ask Me Anything session on Reddit. It starts at 9, and more information can be found at Mississippi Today's website. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio, 